Welcome to another Book Shambles Author Extra this week. It's another one that we recorded at the LAN weekend and it's Robin chatting with the acclaimed author Stella Duffy. But just before we get to that, a quick reminder of the shows we've got coming up at the Albert Hall. Obviously, Space Shambles, the huge show in the main auditorium. That's on June 15. Tickets available for that at the Albert Hall website. And then on June 4th and June 11, we're doing four episodes of Book Shambles live in the Elgar Room at the Albert Hall. June 11, we'll be joined by Adam Buxton and one other special guest. And on June 4th, we'll be joined by Lucy Green and another special guest who we're going to announce this week. And I I have a feeling that the tickets for that are going to move pretty quickly after we announce who that is. So maybe get ahead of the game and book your tickets for that now. Royal Albert Hall website or the Cosmic Shambles website, you'll find all the links to get those tickets. There's plenty of tickets available for the main show at under 10 quid and tickets for the Book Shambles show start at about 15 quid and that's for both recordings. Now on to the episode, here is Robin and Stella. And by the way, I have a bit of a cold, so sorry if this sounds a bit all stuffy. I'll tell you what we'll talk about, because okay. we were just talking about, well in some ways we were talking about the importance before we start recording this, of, of role models, of, yeah. of people knowing that this is a possibility yes. in, in, in their life, whatever, gender, class, culture, yep. sex, etc. So let's talk about, am I right in saying Trixie Belden? <laughs> well done! Uh, Trixie <laughs> Belden, who uh, uh, seems to have been uh, an authorial role model for you. Yeah, I was, um, we moved from council estate in Woolwich in South London when I was five to my dad's native New Zealand. My mum and dad were what we didn't used to call economic migrants and we do call now and they worked in a, a timber town in a mill in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand and um, it was three hours to the closest theatre, about an hour and a half to the closest uh, museum and my dad didn't like those things anyway and he drove and he did shift work. So my town was made up of people creating their own stuff. It was 70% Maori and Polynesian. It was multicultural before that was trendy. Um, but there was this very small library and Woolworths sold books. And we didn't have lots of money for books. And in that white working class aspirational kind of way, not the David Cameron view of what aspiration for working class people should be, which was to get money. Mm my mum and dad's aspiration for us and they both had to leave school at 14 and all my siblings left school at 15, 16. I'm the only one they had enough money to keep on being the youngest of seven kids to go to university. I mean, long enough to stay at school to pass the exam to go to university. Anyway, I started reading quite widely when I was young and that was mum and dad's aspiration for us. Just some opportunity to get some education to have some choices. Mm. And when I came out at sort of 18, 19, my dad, typical really Kiwi working class bloke, was absurdly fine. What he wasn't fine about was when I finished my degree and told him I wasn't gonna be a lawyer or a teacher. He was heartbroken then, seriously heartbroken, like I'd thrown away this opportunity because I wanted to work in the arts. Long-winded way of saying, Trixie Belden was this teenage, working class in an American kind of way, we'd probably call it middle class really, sleuth. And she was kind of a tomboy and I wasn't a tomboy but I liked the idea of that. She worked with a group of kids and they were all teenagers and they weren't twee and posh like the Secret Seven and the Famous Five. They were 
There was an orphan boy called Jim, and there was a posh girl called Honey, and they and they all sleuthed together. And sh and what was really interesting to me, in fact, I've got I don't know if I've ever thought this before. There was three boys and three girls, and the boys weren't cleverer than the girls. I've. S for the purposes of the podcast, my hand is yeah. on my head because I have never thought this before. Yeah, Trixie and Honey and Diana were as smart as Brian and Jim and Mart. That's amazing. And this is written, they, they were written in the 50s and 60s. They were actually written by a group of people in the end. It was sort of like they took over the, the I guess, franchise. But Catherine, Kenny and Carolyn, someone, names like that. And I remember noticing that the names changed of the writers, but not paying much attention when I was 10 or 11. Mm. Anyway, Trixie Belden wasn't Nancy Drew. She wasn't posh. She wasn't cleverer than everyone else. And I really liked that about her. And I had a girl role model when they just didn't exist in writing. So now, I mean, I'm interested in terms of in crime fiction. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested as well that quite often I'll read that you've done literary novels and crime novels as yep. if the two will be entirely oh. separate issues. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's also, it's also <laughs> historical novels. And they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, I've also written a novel set in 1912, which is classed as literary fiction and historical fiction. They're all just books. Literary is just a genre. It's just another way of selling a book. But the crime fiction thing, I don't know how true this is, I only read mm. it a small amount, but it does seem that many of the biggest names yep. in that, and indeed many of the major characters yep. in those stories, are they're written by women with yeah. leading, and, and is that, in, in some ways, in a world that not that long ago would have, like science fiction and horror, mm -hmm. be considered mm -hmm. pulp. Yep. You are in and, and a little bit like B movie horrors. You know, yeah. B movie horror in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. You suddenly, are Night of the Living Dead. One of the major things, yep. and that is the leading man is a black man, yep. and that was unusual. And the same way with some of the women in horror yep. movies as well. They weren't all falling over. No, totally, some of them are like totally. we're the one with we're, the machine gun. We're not always walking down into basements without a torch. <laughs> so that, so that, would you say that in crime fiction there is a a stronger example of? at least some striving towards equality. I, I think so, but I think that's partly because in Britain at least, the the most successful crime fiction writers for a century, until really recently, were Noam Marsh, Dorothy Sayers, um, Agatha Christie and Marjorie Allingham. You had the four queens of crime, and they were all massively successful. I mean massively successful. The Marsh millions were phenomenal. And that was all, what, 30s, 40s? So you had these groundbreaking women selling huge amounts of books and doing brilliantly while interestingly um other than than you know i mean not all of them but certainly you know christy has has a family she's getting on with it um marsh didn't but she had her her nephews they're they're living their lives and making creative work now it's cozies and it's very tied up and it's and it's all nice and safe and then come the sort of 70s, 80s, and you get and Val starts writing, and then later on in the 90s, Mead and East Minor. In America, you've got Karen, Karen Slaughter, Laura Lippmann, you know, phenomenal women, really writing incredibly strong work where they've come to it from a feminist perspective. So they're already grown-up political feminists. And I'm just thinking about the British ones, I'm thinking of someone like Denise, someone like Val, you know, very strong with their, with their um, socialist and awareness politics as well. And lots, I'm certainly not the first woman to say this, you know, we walk down the street still with our keys in our hands, just in case. 
we walk down the street trying not to wear terribly high shoes and you know unless the car's very close or the house is very close we still behave like this in 2018 this means that women are walking around daily with an awareness of an extra level of how do i protect myself which is not to say that there are not certain groups of men particularly young men in our society at the moment suffering from exactly the same thing but women have always felt this and i think that certainly with the late 20th century, early 21st century crime fiction where women have really come to the fore, it's because we're trying to redress a balance. And if we write about how it is, maybe we can understand how it is. You know, people have said, well, why are the women writing violence against women? Well, the women are writing violence against women because we know it better than anyone else. We've lived it all of our lives. And so it's... It's, it's a way of acknowledging it and maybe finding ways to deal with it. You know, it gets in. It really gets into who we are as human beings. So if we write it out in a therapeutic fashion, it's a way of dealing with it. So how do you feel about us talking with Ian Rankin last week or the week before mm. and he mentioned something that I knew nothing about, which is a, a, apparently a new prize a for prize. yeah for crime yeah. writers where, where the, crime, where the, the, the novel has, uh, doesn't have violence against yeah. women in it. Um, I welcome any prizes at all. No, seriously. I've been uh, long-listed for the, um, what was the Orange Prize twice. Both times it made a difference to sales. I've won two short story daggers. Both times it made a difference to sales. Frankly, any prizes which get some press attention make a difference to any writer. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I, I worry that it suggests that it's not okay to write violence against women. Um, I think it's really interesting. I think it's, a, it's an interesting concept. I'm not sure that anything I've ever written would fit in that. I don't think I've ever written anything that doesn't at least acknowledge that violence against women exists. Um, I get the thinking behind it. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's more complex than it's been presented. I, I know Val's written very, very well about that. Um, I welcome it as another prize because I think that we live in a society that, you know, if you get a prize, it makes a difference. It helps sell books. And because, you know, all the new stuff recently about celebrities writing or indeed not writing books and it pushing out regular authors, frankly, anything that gets attention for regular authors is good. However, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I think, of course, there are people gratuitously writing violence against women, but there are people gratuitously writing everything. There are people gratuitously not remembering that women exist in their writing. So, you know, if it brings them attention, great. I don't think that it's the only way of solving the problem. As a crime, when you're writing crime, yeah. in fact, not just crime, all books you're writing, are you someone who the wall is covered in post-it notes <laughs> and, you, and you know what happens in the end? Because I've found it intriguing <laughs> talking to some people who, as, as they're writing at page 200, they go, yeah. oh, yeah. she did it, oh, he did it. And that, and it seems... I'm that person. Right. Um, I have uh, any book at all. In fact, I mean, weirdly, so I've just finished my 16th, came out in, in March, I've never written a novel in which someone doesn't die and in which there isn't some form of tragedy. Um, so perhaps all of them are crime novels, whether they're perceived to be crime novels or not. Um, I, I tried once to really plan something and it was my novel State of Happiness and when I'd finished it, having sold, well, sold the idea, not sold it for money, but sold the idea to my publishers at the time, Scepter, Hodder's Literary Imprint, they didn't want it because it wasn't the book that I'd sold them. I'm completely rubbish at plotting and I think it's because 
back in the 80s when I was a not very good stand-up, I came into writing through being an improviser. And Patrick Marble was in the impro company I was in and Jake Arnott was in the impro company I was in and we became writers, I think, through improvising. And I write my first draft like an improviser. I wait to see what, what comes next. I say yes and a lot. But my main work is in my second, third and eighth draft. And so what do you start... Because that's... I, I was interviewing Mike Brearley yesterday. Yeah. It's a lovely thing about Lon. is one moment it's Mike Brearley, the next moment it's Cosi <laughs> Fanatuti, you know, and it's... Uh, and he has a lovely bit in his book about the, the creative process where he talks about Pinter, uh, where a lot of his plays just started with a line that came to his head. So the homecoming yeah. starts with, where are the scissors? Right. And he said, and, he said I would, I would, and suddenly I would decide, ah, I wish to pursue this line of inquiry. <laughs> where are the scissors? Um, In which body are yeah. the scissors? Or which drawer? Then you know what kind of book you tell yeah. me. Yeah. So how, do you, how much do you need in your head to start writing? Um, well, I've written about, I can't remember the number, I can't, I haven't counted them. It's over 65 short stories. To start a short story, I need to have it so bubbled up inside of me that I can't not sit down and do it now. Like the whole story, almost all of it, including the form in which it's written and the style. Um, for a novel, I need to know a couple of characters that really excite me. Some idea of where it's set, place is hugely important to me. And maybe that is because my first three books were crime novels and because place is so important to crime fiction. Um, and maybe two or three incidents that might happen. Mm-hmm. And I need to know that I can bear to be with it for about nine months to four years. Four years is the longest it's taken me to write a book and nine months is the shortest. And I need to know that I can bear to do that while everything else is going on, while I might be working on a play or a film or Fun Palace's work or something else. Because I have to, because I, I don't, I haven't ever actually, I've never just, you know what Americans call a full-time writer. Um, I've always been doing something else. I, was, I started writing when I was cleaning houses for rich people. I started writing when I was still improvising and standing up. Um, I now write while I do Fun Palaces and write other stuff. But a novel is the core that I go back to. It's what I've been doing on and off since my first one came out in 1994 and I'm always writing a novel at some point and so I have to know that I can bear to live with it but that doesn't need more than half a dozen things that I'm passionate about and I often don't particularly with the crime ones the things that excite me are the things that change in the telling of it and hopefully that's what excites a reader as well because what would be the point in not surprising myself you know, I, if, I, if I knew everything, Jeffrey Deaver, I once did a book tour with Jeff Deaver. He's a lovely, lovely man. But Jeff Deaver, certainly at the time, and it may have changed for him, plans everything. I mean, mega detailed planning so that the writing is, of the novel itself is really, really fast. I'm the opposite. I plan very little, and the writing is really slow and laborious, and lots of rewriting in that. 
going to ask you about one book just because this is a book that the book shambles generally we've been trying to we want it back in print in the UK because mm. it was a wonderful moment where suddenly there was one week where everyone seemed to want to talk about this book it's a book that I was lucky enough to interview the author who's unfortunately dead now Dorothy Porter The Monkey's um, Mask yeah 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 now it was I had that great thing I ended up with chatting and suddenly I mentioned it to Lem Cisse and Lem Cisse yep. knew all about it and then the next day I was with Tanita Tickram mm-hmm. and she said the first book you wrote know what it was and instinctually I just kind of went is it <laughs> The Monkey's Mask what how do you know about this lesbian detective fiction written entirely in rhyme and uh, have you have, so yes I was so my first few novels were published by Serpent's Tale and Serpent's Tale published The Monkey's Mask and Serpent's Tale when I mean yes it still exists is that my phone your phone or no, is that not mine I'd never, not be, mine. So, I'd never be, be so bold if we do that never so bold no it's definitely not mine somebody else is good um, Serpent, when Pete Ayrton was writing Serpent's Tale he was able to do a lot Bold, a lot of bold things. And of course, it's great that Serpent's Tale still exists, but you know, profile are much bigger and it's had to be the thing that it is. For example, they published me. For example, they published Walter Mosley when no one else was publishing Walter in Britain. I mean, imagine that, right? And they published The Monkey's Mask. And I remember, I think, Pete giving me a proof. I think they did like shiny proofs like they do now, but it was a very early version. And I was like, Sorry, she's an Australian Liz and she's written a book written in rhyme and it's a crime novel and all I thought was you bitch because I'd have loved to have had the guts to do that. It is great, isn't That's it? That's phenomenal. Because it's, it's punch, yeah, the yeah, punch, yeah, yeah. the exactly. punch. Exactly. Just... And, and there's something marvellous and delicious. I'm really waving my hands around now, right? <laughs> there's something delicious about the idea. Because I... Th- look, all the best music for me... It's Johnny Cash singing a song about a love gone wrong, right? It's um, the green, green grass of home. And, you know, where's he been? He's been away. It's dark secrets told in story. It's Ode to Billy Joe, you know? So that bit where you go, well, of course it works for rhyme because it works for ballad, because it works for country music. So, of course, crime fiction works for that because crime fiction, the, the juice of it turns on passion. People kill or, or blackmail or, or do brutal things to each other because of love, because of jealousy and because of heartbreak. And I love country music and that to me it's exactly the same reason. Those two things so go well together. Nick Cave? Oh yeah, I could do Nick Cave too. I was going to say, because that, that in terms of its uh, murderous intent even when yeah. murder is not in the album well, title. But, but, is is a balladeer mm. you know I mean even even at his most rocky height he's still a balladeer oh yeah and so and you know ballads go way back but ballads go back in, in our history and ballads go back to you know oldie Englishy because we need to tell each other a story and so if you if you've got the guts to write your crime novel in in rhyme of course it's going to work but it's only going to work for some people because lots of people are going to go this is too weird for me so I won't give it a go mm. and that's you know, hence it not being a print hence those problems it's, hence it being published by Serpent's Tale in the first place because it's Serpent's Tale certainly when I was published by Serpent's Tale in the, in the early 90s it was where people were going let's give this thing a go even though other people are turning it down some fascinating comic books came out from them as well. Uh-huh. Very um, intriguing. It's dark in London. Yeah. When Melinda Gebby mm. did did the, the design for my story. Now I'd written a story about two two Asian women, but because she's American, they they're East East um, 
East Asian women. So they look Japanese, Chinese, you know, they don't look like we would in Britain, call an Asian woman, Indian, Pakistani women. But I just looked at the drawings that she'd done and I went, no, no, that's really cool. This is what happens. This is what Martin Rosen was saying with you yesterday. This is what happens. You tell a story to an artist, a visual artist, and they change it entirely and they make it better. And that's exactly what she did with my story. She took a, a two-page, because it's like writing for film or telly, really. You, you've got to write a lot less. She took a two-page print story, and she turned it into these, I don't know, eight pages of brilliant images set in Camden, which I don't think she knew hardly at all. But, yeah, that was really cool for me. There's an astonishing photo. It's got Billy Childish and Nick Blinko and me and Tony, and, and we're all just... Oh, anyway, it's just, it's just a cool, that was a, that was a really cool anthology. And I didn't quite realise at the time how, how cool everybody was. And I was like, oh my God. And then I kept going, oh my God, it's, it's, it's him. They're all hymns, mostly. They're almost all hymns. Oh my God. Yeah, that was really cool. Melinda's, cool uh, I hope we're eventually going to see her autobiography, which has been oh, for a long time. Because her experience is, yeah, yeah absolutely. is fascinating yes. and sometimes very dying. Yes. incredible. Uh, I mean, the work that she did on, uh, you know, the Lost Girls. Yeah, that, again, yeah, yeah. that meeting yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, 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 of art and story. Yes. The, uh, um, your audience are coming in, oh, so I'm, I'm going to ask are. you uh, two questions yes. more. Uh, one is, what else have you seen here uh, at the Lawn weekend? That uh, has Is there anything that's particularly kind of inspired you, delighted you, or intrigued you? <laughs> yes, I saw you and Martin Rutan yesterday. And what really excited me was he named four women cartoonists young women cartoonists and this is what's, what it's going to take to make change and you were talking about Josie's work and about social media this is what it's sadly because we are still in a world that requires the white man to big up the young women that's just where we are it's just how it is until all of it changes we need that and I got I was so excited to speak we were sitting on the floor of the marquee because it was full to hear him bigging up these four young women artists we need that we desperately need it and I can do that all the time and I do my job apparently at the moment is to tell um, people uh, like my friends who make me producers front row and, uh, and everyone who ever asked me to be on a panel have you asked this young black woman because I, I, I'm sick of it I'm sick of being the only um, uh, basically I'm the tick box they, they get the, the queer working class woman in one go and I'm like well that's not enough so I, I, I've made it sort of my job to say, well, there's not enough people of colour. Have you tried these five amazing young women? If we, if we do that, we will get more engaged, artistic world of every sort. But unless we do that, it's just going to save the status quo. So that excited me enormously, actually. Because uh, I know also when I was uh, uh, with um, uh, helping out on the... Uh, uh, the Christmas lectures this year, having mm. a magnetic pulse to the side of uh, my brain. Uh, there were one of the people I was talking with. They're putting together a, a website of scientists of colour because, again, that's that's yes. that's actually one yes, of the yes, biggest yes. problems. Like the things like monkey cage. Totally. That's where we fall. And well, I'm trying to do something sure. with with um, fun palaces and British Science Association and a whole bunch of amazing people for um, because luckily fun palaces weekend is the first weekend in October and Black History Month is the is the whole of October. So we're going to try and, there's a whole bunch of us that's going to try and just push it more. Because of course, Black Cultural Archives has amazing stuff about scientists of colour in Britain. Both people currently and people in the past. But unless we get those stories out there, 
the status quo maintains that they don't exist, which isn't true. It's just not true. But we've got to get the stories out there. And it might require more people in the public eye to go, okay, I will step back and give someone else my place. That's how it changes. Quickly on fun palaces, yes. uh, which I still haven't got involved with. And I really <laughs> do want to get involved in it. It's not, not being due to uh, me lazing, I promise you. Uh, What's going on with Fun Palaces at the moment and where can people find out more? Um, at the website, funpalaces.co.uk, uh, we are in our fifth year. The region of Bergen in Norway has written Fun Palaces, bringing cult communities together by themselves leading their own arts and sciences, cultural events and supporting communities to do that. Yeah, Bergen and Norway have written us into their 10-year cultural strategy because they've seen it works. Basically, what happened last year, and it really, I think it stepped up another notch, there were 362 fun palaces, mostly around Britain, 90% of them outside London, which is just thrilling in terms of anything to do with, with public culture in Britain, um, in all four nations. 30% of the participants were people of colour. 11% um, of them were run by people who identify as disabled. For some reason, what we're doing, saying yes to anyone who wants to create in their community, be it around arts, around sciences, in, in, in all of their variations. So if it's sciences, we include tech, we include digital. If it's arts, we include craft, we include all of it. We support them to step up and do it. And, and not in a Michael Gove, no, we don't want the experts in here way, but in a, in a real genuine community, Maybe your next door neighbour is a world-renowned physicist and maybe they're a part-time astronomer and maybe they're just somebody who's really bloody good at rag rug making. But either way, they've got a passion they can share. And when people share their passion in community, they have different conversations. Thank you. Welcome. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.